digging into the book of Revelation. And uh, I want you to open to the Revelation chapter 1. Now, a lot of people freak out when we say that. You know, when you say, we're going to open the book of Revelation, people start looking for exits. You know, are we really going to talk about that? Is this one of those churches? Well, yeah, we're one of those churches that preaches like the Bible, right? I mean, it's in there. But, you know, the problem throughout history is, especially modern history, is that, you know, people open this and they just see it as a book of freaky stuff happening, right? Because let's be honest, there's some stuff in the book of Revelation that is just plain out, just plain freaky. I mean, it's horror movie looking stuff. And so you, you kind of just get to the point where you go like, I don't, either I don't want to hear about that because it scares me, or I do want to hear about it because I like to be scared. And both of those are really bad ways to look at it. Because the truth is, if you read the book of Revelation, you see one thing and one thing over and over again, and that's Jesus. And it's the triumph of Jesus. And you don't see it in, in reality. It's not a book of doom and gloom. It's a book of hope. And there's a reason that it's called the book of Revelation. A lot of people say revelations. But it's not revelations, even though there's a lot of stuff that happens in that book. It's the revelation. We get, that, we get that title from the very first opening paragraph, which says, this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. What does the word revelation mean? It means to uncover something, right? To uncover something that's been covered, something that's been hidden is now revealed. What is being revealed? So when we say it's the book of Revelations, which I don't mind. If you say that, don't feel bad for saying that. Everybody gets a pass. But if you, go, if you say it's Revelations, what, I'm, what you're thinking is that there's a bunch of revelations, a lot of things that are being revealed, and there are. But this book isn't about all the things. This book is about him. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. So when you read this, it's important that you see what you're meant to see here. You're meant to see Jesus, and you're meant to see Jesus overcoming. Does anybody here in the room hear the word apocalypse and think, that's a nice word? If I were to say, Tony, we are having an apocalypse today, you're not like, oh, goody, that sounds fun. Apocalypse now, right? But the word apocalypse is not a bad word in its original language. I mean, the, the, it comes from the Greek apocalypsis, which just means to reveal, to uncover, and the reason that when people hear apocalypse, they freak out is because of this book. Because this book was the apocalypsis of Jesus Christ, the, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so when people think apocalypse, they think, ah, end of the world. But you actually see, yes, the passing away of one world, the passing away of one thing, and the birth and the beginning of another, or the continuation of another, because his kingdom is without beginning and it's without end. The other thing about the book of Revelation that, I'll be honest with you, I don't understand at all. If anyone says they understand every bit of the book of Revelation, I want to meet them, but I'm not sure I believe them. Yeah. Right? Because it's one of those things you just grow, you just, you get to you get pieces and you, you learn and you grow and, and you should seek to understand. In fact, one of the first things that's said in this book is, blessed is the one that reads this and hears it and understands it. And there's a key. See, in grade five, I was in grade five in Rendell Park, and the Gideons came and passed out little red Bibles. Does anybody remember the little red New Testaments? Yeah, I don't think, I don't know if they're allowed to do that anymore, but I, I really enjoyed that all my class got these little red New, New Testaments. 
So they, I, they knew I was a pastor's kid, so everybody's like looking to me like, hey, what should we read? And what I should have said is, let's read about Jesus, you know, the stuff in the red letters. But instead, I wanted to uh, <laughs> impress my friends. So I said, turn to the back. There's cool stuff. There's like beasts with seven eyes and stuff, man. I mean, like it's, they all did the whoa. Like the boys or the girls are like, eh, I don't like that. The boys are like, whoa. But in reality, that wasn't really giving them much light on anything, was it? It wasn't growing them any closer to Jesus. And unfortunately, most of the time when people have picked up this book, they haven't understood it. And when you don't understand something, things can go wrong, Right? One of the things you come to understand as you read through this book and this letter is that it's not, first of all, not everything, some, there's literal stuff, there's metaphorical, there's a lot of metaphors, a lot of symbols going on. The other thing that you realize is it's not linear. What is, I mean, what is, what's essentially happening in this book is that John is seeing a vision and Jesus is taking him to see things from the perspective that God sees it from. And we've talked about this before, but God is not li living in a linear time. So he's not, God's not starting at the beginning and hoping to get to the end. He's in all of it. So we talked about that. We talked about the parade. You know, you might be sitting there waiting for the parade to come, but the parade's already started. The, the beginning's already there. The end's already there. So imagine you were way up in a helicopter looking down. You see the beginning of the parade. You see the middle of the parade. You see the end of the parade. It's all happening at the same time. But on street level, you see the first part, then you see the middle part, then you see the last part. But if you were looking from bird's eye view, you'd see the whole thing all at once. Well, God is not going through time like we are. The, the Bible says he is the ancient of days. It says he is without beginning, he's without end. The cool thing about eternity is that when you start to think about it, your brain trips a breaker, right? You start thinking about forever and ever and ever. Now, I just get kind of sleepy when I think about that. My wife gets like, she's like, I don't like to think about that. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I don't like to think about because it's hard to think about that. I don't like to think about that, so I don't want to talk, you know. But everybody kind of approaches it different. But the book of Revelation, I mean, there, there are times that you go, let me follow this story. Does this happen, then this happen, then this happen? But you'll be reading this part, and it's talking about something that's going to happen towards the end of everything. And then after that, you're reading about the birth of Jesus. And then you're reading about Skip, skip ahead a couple thousand years and, and, or, or two things that are happening at two different po points in history. And so if you were to read it like a story that had a beginning and an end, you'd be confused. But if you're looking at it from the perspective of this is history and the world from God's perspective, this is what's gonna happen. It does have a good ending, doesn't it? The thing you bring away from this book is this ends well. And the reason it ends well is because the king that's on the throne. For the next foreseeable future on Wednesday nights, we're going to be going through some of the letters that Jesus wrote to the churches in the first three chapters of the book of Revelation. But we're not just going to stop there. We're not going to go verse by verse through every single thing, but we're going to go throughout this book and see a pattern of Jesus overcoming. Because that is a theme in the book of Revelation, is overcoming. In fact, in all of those letters, he speaks to the one that overcomes. This was written, just for a little bit of background, this letter was written by the Apostle John. 
He was the youngest of all the disciples. He was the one that, uh, that in fact, people asked, hey, if, is John going to live like until you come back? Is he going to see everything? And Jesus says, what does it matter if he does? You just follow me. John was the one at the Last Supper that leaned his head against Jesus and sat right next to him. He, he, he was somebody that was taken under his wing. John actually lived, not only was, did he live longer because he was younger starting out, but he probably lived longer than all of them because he lived really far into his old age. And God delivered him from two execution attempts. See, John lived in Ephesus for a while. Ephesus was this port city into Asia Minor, the Roman province of Asia Minor. So when we hear Asia Minor, we think like, Far East Asia. But Asia Minor is what's now Turkey and, and uh, you know, part of Greece and Turkey and Syria. That's, Asia, that's what the Roman province of Asia Minor was. And so Ephesus was this port city in, into what's now Turkey. And it was kind of the gateway to these other cities in that province. Ephesus was a place that had a lot of different, because it was a port city, because a lot of trade took place, it had a lot of different religions mixing together. The church had really taken hold in Ephesus. And if you've read Acts chapter you know, 19 and you've read some of the things that happened when Paul was in Ephesus, it's some of the most exciting stuff in church history. But the church continued and John actually lived in Ephesus. And according to church history, he took care of Jesus' mother Mary there in Ephesus. If you'll remember at the cross, Jesus looked at John and said, take care of my mom. And so John kept that deal, took care of Mary, had a house in Ephesus, treated her like his own mother. And in fact, he was the apostle that oversaw the churches in all of Asia Minor. So those seven churches in Revelations 1 through 3 that Jesus writes letters to, those are the churches that John is in charge of. He's overseeing these churches. One day, John is walking sort of near the center of the city. Domitian is emperor at this point. We've already gone through Nero. We've gone through, you know, Titus, Vespasian, Titus. We've gone through all this. And we've ended up in an emperor named Domitian. Now, one of the problems with royal pedigree is you end up inbreeding and you create crazy people. <laughs> right? Eventually. Eventually this happens. Not only that, but you give somebody who's already maybe on the edge of crazy, you give them way too much power and they become really crazy. Especially when crazy already ran in the family. Domitian became convinced that he was God, a God. And one of his laws that he passed throughout the, the empire was that statues be erected in his honor. And when you passed that statue, you showed honor to the God, the emperor, Domitian. Now, the Christians stood firm on this. We're not going to do this. We bow our knee to nobody but Jesus. There is no Lord but Jesus. They were good citizens, but that was a bridge too far. Christianity taught the church to obey authority, to be good citizens, except when it went against God's law. So, you know, if they passed a law and said you have to pay this much tax, the church would pay that tax. If they passed a law and said this, you know, you guys have to live in this part of the city, they would have done so. But you pass a law and say you have to worship the emperor, they're not going to do that. 
John's an old man. He's walking through the city. He goes by it, and this is according to church history. Now, I want you to understand that to me, there's a difference between what the Scripture says and what church history says. Fair? Scripture, I take as up here. Church history, I take as pretty reliable because it's backed up by several sources, but it's not on the same level as Scripture. So when I'm giving you little tidbits of information and I say this is church history, understand that I'm giving you the right to say, I don't believe that. But I'm telling you it's reliable sources, okay? These are people that were eyewitnesses at the time. This is not legend that popped up 200 years later, all right? According to the history of the church, John was walking through Ephesus. And he went by the statue of Domitian. He didn't bow. He didn't offer a sacrifice. He didn't even dip his head in reverence, which was like the very minimum you could do was at least bow your head like this. He was spotted by authorities. They dragged him in. And they tried to execute him a couple times. We won't go into that. Didn't work out well for them. So the next thing they do is they exile him to this isle where all these exiles of the Roman Empire, the Isle of Patmos, end up. When you get on the Isle of Patmos, there's two places you could go. The nice criminals and the criminals that are really bad. Enemies of society. If you go to one side of the island, it's rough. If you go to the other side of the island, it's really rough. And in fact, they kind of had developed their own communities on this exile island. If you were part of the bad criminals that got exiled to Patmos, the first thing they do when you get off the boat is flog you. Just to show you, when you get here, you belong to us. It was an island where they'd put you to hard labor. They'd make you work. They figured, cut him off from all his friends, all his supporters. He won't be a threat anymore. But it's on that island that Jesus appears to him, catches him up, gives him a vision, and says, this is what's going to happen, this is what has happened, and this is the past, future, and present all wrapped into one. And this is who I am. I want you to write this letter to the church. So let's pick up from there and read in Revelation chapter 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his bondservants the things that must soon take place. And he sent and he communicated it by his angel. Now, the word angel here, well, let's just keep reading. By his angel to his bondservant John, who testified to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of the prophecy and heed the things which are written in it, for the time is near. Did you hear that, guys? You're blessed tonight. You're blessed tonight because somebody's reading this, so I'm blessed because I get to read it. You're blessed because you get to hear it. But it's not just the hearing, it's the doing, isn't it? Heeds the words that are written here, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So that's eternal God there. From him who is and who was and is, is to come. So he's in the present, past, and future. And from the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, to him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. 
Behold, he's coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So it is to be. Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. You know, as I was um, getting ready to, to, to prepare what we were going to talk about tonight, um, began to go in the direction of really focusing on that statement, he's the ruler of the kings of the earth. And talk about what that means. Jesus is the ruler of all the kings of the earth. And what a time to talk about that, right? Because the world is in turmoil. And so people get this idea of either one of two things. Either God is just gone. He's just absent and the world's gone amok. Or God is a terrible God and he's causing people to do terrible things. I want to tell you, neither of those things are true. You know, the Bible says, don't let anyone say that God tempted me, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither can he tempt with evil. So if you have anybody that says, well, God must just have wanted that kid to be abused all their life. God, somehow that must have been God's plan. Let me tell you something. In order for that to happen, God would have had to tempt, put evil in someone's heart to abuse a child for whatever purpose and say, that's me putting evil in their heart. I'm tempting them. They did it because I made them do it. And the Bible says he does not do that. He does not tempt with evil. Here's the good news. God has seen everything that will happen. And God is able to take what Satan meant for evil and turn it to good. God is able to turn everything for your good, for your triumph, that in the end, there is a battle, there is a fight, but we are destined for victory. Right? He's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. We're actually going to see that in a few places. That he could be King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and those kings still be in rebellion against him, but it doesn't threaten his rule. So you look around, you see the nations are in turmoil. You got, you got a crazy guy in North Korea pointing missiles at people. You got, you got all these, these natural disasters going off. You've got nations priming for World War III, which just seems like once that thing gets started, we destroy ourselves. Where's God? When we see this, we see hope. Because he goes, I know how this all turns out, guys. Let me tell you something. It turns out good. You know, there's a reason Jesus told us about all the stuff that was going to happen. He says, I'm telling you about all the stuff that you're going to have to face so that you know this. I've already overcome the world. That you know this ends good. He says, and I'm telling you this so you don't stumble. Because he says, in the end, in the last days, Jesus said this, in the last days, men's heart will fail them because of fear. When he says men, he means people. People's hearts will fail them because they're fearful. Fear attacks our faith. Despair attacks our hope. And when we don't have hope, we don't have endurance. When we don't have faith, we don't have that endurance. We give up. So Jesus says, I want you to know what's going to happen, not to scare you, not to make you worried, but to put boldness and courage in your hearts. Stand firm for this little bit, because in the end, it turns out good. In the end, I will have my say. In the end, all of these nations that are raging will be put to folly. What's interesting is that just today, 
as I was getting ready, because we were talking about, <clears throat> we're, I was planning on talking about this tonight, about him being the ruler of all the kings, king of kings and lord of lords. And then I realized tonight is Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year. And one of the things that's celebrated during this time is the idea of God as king, of him being king. You know, through the Feast of Trumpets and the Ten Days of Awe, you know, the, it, the, the theme that comes up over and over again, it's not the only theme, but it's a major theme, is that he is king over all. What a great time to talk about him being the king of kings, the ruler of the kings of the earth. I want, you to, I want to read this again because I want you to see your place in it. He says here, In verse 5, from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead. So what does that mean, firstborn of the dead? That means Jesus came back from the dead, right? He was resurrected, but he's the first of many. That's That's your story. Is that though your body will die, you yourself are destined to live. You yourself are part of his resurrection. So he's the firstborn of the dead, and you're in the rest of that group. Then he says this. He's the firstborn of the dead. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us. Wow, isn't that cool? Even in this moment when you're just in awe of this amazing king who's triumphed, then you're still reminded to him who loves us and gave his life for us, released us from our sins by his blood. And he has made us to be a kingdom. Well, that word could be translated, he has made us to be royalty. He has made us to be a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion. To him be the glory and the dominion. What does the word dominion mean? It means lordship. Dominion means you're, you're in charge. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is something we got to remind ourselves when things get crazy. You have got to remind yourself that nobody has taken his lordship. People are shaking their fists. People are riling their armies up. They're getting prepared, but they cannot overcome what God has already destined to happen. He says here that not only is he a king, the king, but he's made us to be part of that kingdom. He's made us to be a kingdom and priests. The king part is all throughout the book of Revelation. It says this, two other times besides this, it says he's made us to be kings and priests to God. Well, kings, that means we rule with him. It says we will rule with him. In fact, in Revelation chapter 5, don't, you don't have to turn there, but I'll just read it to you real quick because I'm going to be quoting a whole bunch from different stuff as we mosey through this. My iPad's not working, so I'm going to do this another way. Revelation chapter 5, he says the same thing in verse 10. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Probably doesn't feel like you're reigning right now, does it? but might not feel like you have much control over anything. But we've been made part of his kingship. Scripture says that uh, he will reign until all his enemies be made footstools for his feet. 
I want to tell you, those enemies aren't people. What does the Bible say? Our battle is not against people. It's not against flesh and blood. And that's the problem is that people start seeing people as the enemy. People aren't your enemy. The enemy is as old as time. And it says here that he's going to sit on his throne. He's sitting on his throne. No, that's a weird place to be if you've got a rebellion on your hands just to sit there, right? You've got a rebellion on your hands that needs, needs control. Why are you sitting down? He says he will sit until all his enemies be made a footstool for his feet because he is reigning he is ruling and he is reigning, but he's made us part of that reign. He's made us part of that authority. We have a part to play in his kingdom being established. And it's not the same kingdom that the world's looking for. The world's looking for power. The world's looking for control. But the power of the kingdom is so much better. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, you guys are thinking about it like everybody else does. He says, when the Gentiles get power, they use it to control people, right? They, they lord over people. He said, but it's not that way with you. If you want to be great in my kingdom, you're going to be a servant to everybody else. The guy who wants to be great in my kingdom will be a slave to all. He showed us a different type of kingdom. Some people have called it the upside down kingdom. But it's really the world that's upside down. It's his kingdom that's right side up. You have made them. You've made them. Now, I love that because there's nothing I can do to deserve that. There's nothing I can do to make that happen. He's already done that. He's made me to be royalty, to be part of that kingship. And priests, what does that mean? That means we minister to God. We have something to offer to God. Isn't that weird? What do you have that he doesn't already have? You have your worship. You have your life. We have something to offer to the king. Back to that thought of him being the ruler of the kings of the earth. That's something that um, at first glance, once again, might not even seem to be something that you think is happening right now. Might seem like God is more out of control than in control. There's a place in Revelation chapter 17 that says all of these kings line up. Revelation 17, 14 says, these will wage war against the Lamb. What, who are the these that he's talking about? He says there are kings that are lining up against him. There are kings that are going to war against him. He says these will wage war against the Lamb, the Lamb being Jesus. And the Lamb will overcome them because he is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with him, now I hope you say that to you, those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. So that's what God's looking for here. He's saying those that are with him are the called, the chosen, and the faithful. There's another section of scripture that talks about this great battle. Anybody heard the term Armageddon? Right? Once again, the world loves these words, right? What's Armageddon about? It's about Ben Affleck going and stopping a, an asteroid from hitting the, the earth, right? It's, it's I don't want to close my eyes. I don't want to fall. Isn't that, the, isn't that Armageddon? 
No, where does the word Armageddon come from? See, all these words we misunderstand because culture has taken them and said it means bad things, apocalypse, bad things, Armageddon, scary things. But Armageddon basically means in Hebrew, it's going to happen at Megiddo. Like this is at Megiddo. Megiddo being an actual place, not a made-up place. It's not like Middle Earth. This is not like some fantasy world. Megiddo is a real place you could go visit right now. And don't worry, don't be afraid if you visit there that war is going to break out all around you or that you're just going to get in a fight with your wife all of a sudden. I mean, just, you know, it's, it's a place you could visit. In the Valley of Megiddo, it says all of these kings will meet for battle. There's going to be a point where the nations come to a tipping point. And in fact, it describes a scene where everybody is lining up against God himself. And in this place... He talks about kings of the earth and the nations of the earth lining against them. And there's a scary verse that's not really a popular one in 2017. (laughs) He basically says, God says, hey, all you birds, get ready. You're going to have a feast. Now, I see that's not a scripture we put on our T-shirts. You know, that's not one that we want to talk about. Because actually, if you read the book of Revelation, what you see over and over is the mercy of God. Mercy, mercy, mercy. Instead of a God who says, I will utterly destroy you, you see a God who says, one more chance, come. One more chance, come. You know how the the story ends? If you skip to the end of the book of Revelation, which we'll talk about at a future date, but when you skip to the end of the book of Revelation, it talks about this great city. This beautiful city where those who have given their lives are now welcomed. It talks about these people who have been persecuted and hurt and damaged. And then he says, come here, I'll give you refuge. And you'll no longer feel the heat of the sun. You'll no longer feel the pain. Come here, I've got healing for you. It talks about the leaves of the trees being for the healing of the nations. But it also speaks of this city and it talks about all of the people on the outside. All of these people, these these rejected, broken, and rebellious people, and it says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come. See, the end of the story is not God kicking everybody out of the city like the two got kicked out of the garden. The end of the story is Jesus, the Lamb, inviting people to come and join, come to the city there will be some that reject that offer. There are some that reject it even today. But we serve such a wonderful and merciful God, a Savior. I mean, people talk about this. You know, look at all the people. is, Is God sending all these people to hell? And the truth of the matter is, no, we're sending ourselves there. It's Jesus who died to save you from it. We didn't need any help finding our way to death, but we needed help coming to life. And Jesus gave himself. That's a beautiful picture of his faithfulness. But that, that battle, I got off track, but that battle where he says, come, you're about to get a feast, because these guys are about to find out it's not so easy to stand up against God. It says he'll defeat them because he is the king of kings and lord of lords. In fact, he's, got a, he's wearing a sash that says, King of kings and Lord of lords. And at that point, these guys are going to stand up and realize we didn't know who we were fighting against. 
Now, the question I have to ask you tonight, and the reason we've talked about all this, maybe you're lost, maybe you're wondering why he said all this, but let me ask you a question. If he's king of kings and lord of lords, then why are all those kings lining up against him? Right? If he's king of kings and lord of lords, then why aren't they on his team? He's their king. Because king of kings and lord of lords does not necessarily mean that he's controlling us like robots. People have still rebelled. But those kings that have lined up against the king of kings are about to find out that they cannot line up against the king of kings and stand. That he's about to demonstrate the fact that he's above them. Now, at the end of the story, the scripture says every knee will bow. Now, the good thing is he gave us the option to just bow. He gave us the option to, to, to embrace his love and accept it. But he says there'll be those at the end of the day that stand up in rebellion and they will bow. No matter how you bow, you're going to bow eventually. King of kings, Lord of lords, rulers of the kings of the earth, they will still rebel. But at the end of the day, he'll be shown to be king kings. I want to remind you of what happened in Acts chapter 4. Remember uh, Peter and John created, uh, actually um, committed a great crime against the state. If you remember, do you remember what they did? They healed a lame guy, which is a terrible thing to do, isn't it? I can't tell I'm being sarcastic. Like, they, the guy got healed, right? But, but the great crime was not that a man got healed, but the, the rulers wanted to know, how did you get the authority to heal this guy? I would have thought everybody would just say, look, he's healed. Let's celebrate that. But they don't want to celebrate that. They want to know, how did you do it? By whose authority did you heal this man? Well, by whoever's authority I did, obviously he's right, the man is better. They get called in to the principal's office. They get called in front of the leaders, the, the chiefs and the priests, the leaders of the synagogue. And they get called in for using this name, this name of Jesus. What does that mean, using the name of Jesus? How can you use somebody's name? Jesus left them his authority. All the authority in his name. As he went about healing the sick and, and delivering those oppressed by the devil, he empowered his followers and said, in my name, you're going to do the same things I did. So they run into this guy. He's lame. And they go, in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And the man walks. But they did it right in front of the temple. There's a place called the Portico of Solomon which is just a little covered archway outside the temple. And people gathered around them. And this, the man who was healed, it says, was clinging to them. And then a crowd gathered. And everybody wanted to know what happened and how it happened. And this crowd got the attention of the authorities. They call Peter and John and they say, how did you do this? By whose name did you do this? And they said, guys, it's not by our personal spirituality. It's not by our holiness. It's not by anything we did that the man got healed. It's by the name of Jesus. And because of the name of Jesus, this man is walking today. You'd think that they'd get a round of applause, but instead they got a threat. They actually got beaten and then threatened, or threatened and then beaten, rather. And the threat was, we're going to let you off with a beating this time, but don't you dare ever teach in this name again. And the threat in the air is, if you do this again, you're going to end up like the name you're quoting. 
you're invoking. You're going to end up like Jesus. We're going to kill you. So they go back to their group. They go back to their church. And they say, guys, this is what happened. And here's the church's response, and I love it. The church's response is to pray. The church says, let's pray. And they lifted up their voice. It says, with one voice, they prayed this. Now, I want you to know that they didn't like, in a weird cult-like fashion, all say the same words at the same time. When it says they prayed with one voice, it means somebody led the prayer, but they were so in agreement, it was like they were all praying the same thing, which is pretty cool. That's what I'd love. Those are the prayer meetings I want to be at, right? I want to read you the prayer that they prayed. Acts 4, verse 24 says, When they heard this, they lifted up their voices to God with one accord and said, O Lord, first two words are this, O Lord. Now, we say that today, and it's like, O Lord. (laughs) We don't mean it like they did. What does O Lord mean? You're in charge, right? Lord means you're the boss. You're You're in charge here. The first thing that they're saying is, hey, man in charge, this is what's happening. Oh, Lord, it is you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. You see, what they're responding to is threats from the authorities. And the way they're responding in their prayer is to remind themselves and to say it to God, but they're saying as much to themselves as they're saying it to God. Hey, these guys may seem to be in charge, but you're way over their heads. It's you who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that's in them. Who by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of our father David, your servant said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. Listen to that. You said from Psalms, you said through our father David, you said, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples devise futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand. David was talking about a day when all the kings of the earth are standing against God. And look what it says. The kings of the earth took their stand. The rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ or his Messiah. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus. You realize people like to say the Jews crucified Jesus. Truth of the matter is we all crucified Jesus. And I think the Italians get off easy because they were the ones nailing them to the cross. Right? No, throughout history, you know. Some idiot in the crusade goes, you, you guys killed Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who sent you? The, the Italian Pope? You know, you know, it was the Romans that put the nails in the hands, but it was all of us that put Jesus to death. It was for our sin that he went there. You can't blame one nation. We're all in on it. We're all part of it. Can't blame one people group. We all did it. He says, the rulers gathered together. Rarely, you understand that the Jewish people at that time were being oppressed by the Romans. The Romans were not their friends, but they ganged up to crucify Jesus. The rulers of the world stood together against the Lord and against his Christ. In verse 27, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate. So he's showing the gathering of nations. 
along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. In other words, what the Gentiles decided did not surprise God. In the end, all of their plans turn out to be folly. And now, Lord, take note of their threats and grant that your bondservants may speak your word with all confidence while you extend your hand to heal and signs and wonders take place to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they had gathered together was shaken and they are all filled with the Spirit, Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I love that picture. God's response to rebellion and threats is to heal a bunch of people. Isn't that amazing? His response to the kingdoms of the world trying to flex their muscles is to flex his kingdom muscles (laughs) and expand his own kingdom by giving them, filling them with the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit brings about the kingdom of God through us. I love the picture of the response of a church that's being threatened by authorities is to remind themselves and to, remind, and to pray to God to be reminded that he's the one really in authority and that nothing the nations devise is a surprise to God. Why is this important? It's important because we're in a period of tension. We're in this moment where everything around us says, where's the king? And when we realize he is on the throne and he's ruling, and it's our part to enter into that ruling. It's our part to get in on it. It's our part because we've been made kings too. We're supposed to be in on this through our prayer, through our love, through our giving. We're supposed to be impacting the world. So his kingdom is making the inroads that it's going to make. And at the end of the day, all of these kings stand up against him. And he says, I'm your king. I'm the king of kings and I'm the Lord of lords. I'm the ruler of the kings of the earth. So don't be afraid. As Jesus said, when all these things happen and everybody else is fainting because of fear, you take courage. I've overcome the world. Be of good cheer. I've overcome the world. It's important that you don't panic with everybody else. It's important that when you turn on CNN, you don't freak out saying, what's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my family? It's important that you say, my king is on the throne. I'm not scared. I'm not worried. I'm going to stand. This is a moment of battle. This is a moment of, uh, where everybody else says what's happening, but I know how this ends. I know the story because he's written the end from the beginning. When he says this, I'm, you know, I, I want to remind you of the rest of this verse. You see, they quoted a verse from Psalms. They quoted a verse that David wrote about the rulers taking their stand against God. I want to read you the original in the book of Psalms as we close tonight. turn to Psalms. Do you know what Psalm I'm going to? Does anybody got it in your column? You know how to read your little column in the middle of the Bible? Too many. Kim says it's too many. 
Guys, let's all just give up. <laughs> I ask you because my, my uh, it's in Psalm chapter 2, my iPad's creeping out. Psalm chapter 2, let's, get, let's turn there real quick. I hope we haven't gone in too many directions for you guys to hang on to what we're saying here. But he says, Psalm chapter 2 says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand. What does a vain thing mean? It's, it's pointless. It's useless. All their plans are going to come to nothing. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against his anointed or his Messiah, saying, let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. What, what does that mean? Nobody can control me. Nobody's over me. I'm a king. Who's, I, no God can tell me what to do. Let's cast off the control. Let's cast off the fetters and the cords and entangles. Cast off the God that we used to serve. Let's cast off his rule. He doesn't rule over us. Here's God's response to the strongest nations in the world shaking their fist. To the mightiest armies in the world being gathered against him. Here is God's response. He sits in the heaven and he panics. No. He sits in the heavens and he shakes in fear. He sits in the heavens and he laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Who's that king that he's talking about? King Jesus. He says, guys, did you know that there is a king over all you kings? Did you know there's a ruler over all you rulers? I've already installed him. He's already in control. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord or of Yahweh. He said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. Now, when we read that, you are my son, today I've begotten you, that's David writing it, but what does the New Testament tell us? He's talking about Jesus. God, the Father, says to Jesus, you're my son, today I've begotten you. What do you mean today I've begotten you? Jesus existed before time. Right? But through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, he was exalted and given a name above every name. Today I've begotten you. I will surely give the nation, ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. Now we sing that, we say, Lord, right? We say, Lord, we ask of you and you give us the nations. In other words, like, send us people that will come to you that we can love, that we can share the gospel with. But you know, the original context is the Father saying to Jesus, ask me and I'll give you the nations. Because the truth is, that prayer's already been answered. Jesus has asked, and he has received the nations. We are his inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. You will break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, lest you think that's a terrible thing, <laughs> that sounds bad. He's going to break the nations? No, he's going to break all that false control. Everything that stands up against them will fall. You know, the end of the story that I read is that there's a day when the lion will lay down with the lamb, when all the swords will be beaten into plowshares, 
When a child can stick his hand in a snake's nest and not be afraid, that's what the Bible says will happen. And it says it'll happen in the great kingdom of God. And the only reason that works is because he's the king. He's the king, things go right. He says this, Therefore, O kings, you better show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the son that he not become angry and you perish in his way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are those who take refuge in him. Now, I don't want you to be afraid when you read this because the Bible tells us that Jesus took for us the wrath. That God's not going to be angry at you because Jesus took your punishment. He died your death. He paid your way. But he says, guys, if nations rise up against him, it's a bad idea. It's a bad idea because in the end, he will have his dominion from sea to sea, from the rivers to the ends of the earth. Once again, I say all this to you tonight. I I hope you didn't read this and, and just get freaked out. But I say all this to you tonight so that you know this. We are not of those that panic. We're not of those that look around at the news and say, what's happening? We are those that say, we serve a king of kings and a ruler of rulers. He is the ruler of the kings of the earth. One day, one day, all of them will face, they'll face that moment where if they're still standing against him, they learn what happens when you stand against God. Thank God he's made an invitation to every tribe, every nation, every tongue to draw near to God and he will draw near to you, to, to repent and be saved. He's given us all of that. Now I look at wackos and dictators and, and crazies all over the world and you start to say, God, where are you? And he says, I'm right here on my throne. Now here's your part. You're part of my kingdom. And you think that people are the enemy, but they're not. There's something above that. There's something beyond that. Be part of the kingdom. Rule and reign with Christ. Don't give in to fear, but rather have hope. Have hope, have faith, have trust. This is going to turn out well in the end. Though the nations rage, though the mountains should slip in the sea, his kingdom will reign forever and ever. Amen. Let's stand and let's pray.